0: It's just a great treat to be with you. You guys are, have been studying, uh, going through the book of Ruth. And when I think of Ruth, and I think of Naomi and uh, her husband, Elimelech, they left Israel. There's a famine going on. And they leave uh, this, uh, the, the land of Judah and Bethlehem. And they go to a land called Moab. And uh, Naomi takes her two sons with her, with her husband. And once they get to Moab, what happens? Naomi's husband dies. Elimelech passes away. And then time goes on and her two sons, they marry Moabite women from a pagan culture. And then those two sons of Naomi, they die. They pass away. And here is this widow with two daughters-in-law that are widowed. And there's a lot of, uh, what I would say, maybe discouragement, maybe disillusionment. Uh, Maybe they were overwhelmed, maybe even depressed. And you know what, as I read this story, I can relate a little bit. I haven't lost uh, two sons, but several years ago, In 2012, my wife and I decided that we, uh, I'd been on staff at Southeast Christian uh, Church in my 14th year. I was the men's pastor for over 10 years, and then they asked me to lead the Oldham Crestwood campus out in Oldham County. And I launched that, and uh, it was exploding. We had almost doubled uh, what we had anticipated, and my wife's ministry, Kristen, her ministry was exploding. She had a radio show. She was on every day. Um... On 94.7, some of you might have heard her, and we were just excited. Uh, we we had, had a prayer team around us, and we were, we were going to... I, I stepping down from southeast so that we could do ministry together. We had been doing marriage stuff around the country, from California to the East Coast, to Alaska, to, to the Caribbean, and we were just excited of what God had in store next, and so I stepped down, and when that went public, um, the communications... Blasted out to all our staff, about 300 staff and elders and deacons. And they said, "Uh, Kurt is resigning, stepping down. He's going full time with his wife, Kristen, with further still ministries. We were excited. And when that blast went out and went public, 10 minutes later, literally 10 minutes later, the phone rang. Picked up the phone and it was Dr. Jennifer Burkhead. She said, I need to talk to Kristen right now. And she said, Kristen, you you have lung cancer. What? Lung cancer? Kristen's never smoked a cigarette in her life, never been around cigarettes. How can this be? Stage four lung cancer. Doctors gave her no hope zero. They said, you have to have a miracle. And so we prayed for a miracle. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And there was no miracle. I was reading uh, to her Streams in the Desert, which was one of her favorite devotionals, on January 22nd, 2014. And as I was reading, she was already in a coma, but I was reading, the doctor said, "She probably can still hear you. Hearing's the last to go." And as I was reading that devotion, I could tell her breathing was changing, and by the time I finished, she took her last breath. And immediately there was two emotions. One, emotion was just of relief. The pain and suffering was over. She had suffered. Tremendously, especially the last few months. But then there was the, the other emotion of unbelievable sadness and sorrow. Um, one of my favorite pictures of our family is, uh, take a look at that picture. It's one of my favorite pictures of us. And... Those kids were so happy and content and secure and full of life. And it was like uh, Kristen had blown that picture up about three by four. I had it in my office right above my desk. And it was like somebody had taken a big rock and just had shattered that picture. And we were deeply, deeply sad family. when I was uh, right before the visitation funeral I I just couldn't stop crying and I it was kinda like out of control I was so sad I called my good friend my doctor I said Wayne I need help he said you need Xanax can we just praise God for Xanax (laughs) somebody came up to me afterwards uh, when I was sharing that, and they said, you, you need to be careful. That Xanax stuff is uh, addictive. I know, I know it is, but it was helpful. <laughs> and uh, I haven't had Xanax in two years. But the morning of Kristen's funeral, my three girls decide they're going to wear a dress of mom's. I'm like, oh my goodness, you've got to be kidding me. And so... I've got three girls and a boy, and the three girls are all about the same size as mom—five foot two, 100 pounds. And Ivy comes down first, and they all remind me of Kristen in so many ways. But Ivy probably a little more on this mo- at this moment, she had Kristen's dress on. She's uh, kind of our redhead, strawberry blonde, much like Kristen was when I met her 25 plus years ago. And so she comes down the stairs, and I say, "Oh, Ivy." You look so much like your mama. You're so pretty. I used to tell the girls, you're all beautiful, but you're not quite as good looking as your mother. And uh, as she came down the stairs, I went to give her a hug, and I embraced her. And I exploded into tears. I started weeping almost uncontrollably. And Ivy, I was as I was holding her, Ivy was kind of getting claustrophobic, and she kind of pushed me away a little, and she goes, Daddy, have you had your Xanax yet today? (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't, honey. I remember at the funeral, Bob Russell said, Kurt, one day, one day, God will make it all right. One day. He'll make it right. And he said to me, Psalm 30, verse 5, he says, Weeping, Kurt, may, be, may remain for a night, but rejoicing will come in the morning. He goes, I don't know when your rejoicing will come, but it will come in this life and for sure in the next. You know, how do you handle sadness? How do you handle Tragedy when it strikes, when the rug's been pulled out from you, when there seems that nothing good is happening in your life. That was Naomi. That was Ruth. That was Orpah. And so we're going to learn some lessons from these three women, mostly two women, and I'm going to share some lessons that I've learned in my grief journey over the last three and a half years. And so in Ruth chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 6 and follow until the end of the chapter. And as I I read this, could we just honor God and His Word by standing as we read Ruth chapter 1. So would you stand with me please? When she, Naomi... When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them back in Judah, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Evidently, they are on their way and, and they're, they're, they've heard good news. that they're, That's why they're going back to Judah. In verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, No, but you go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me as, as widows of my sons. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She has hope that they will one day remarry. She, she then kissed them, and they wept aloud, more tears. Three widows, all lost their husbands. We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, no, return my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? She's referring to the Jewish custom that when a brother or a near relative is, uh, is, could possibly marry the widow, they could have a, a family. No, she says, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had, had a husband tonight and then give birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried For them? No, no, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again, more tears. Then Orpah kissed her mother in law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister in law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Great, we use this in weddings, but in this culture, it's a daughter-in-law saying this to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What a phenomenal daughter-in-law. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? They had remembered Naomi. I'm sure she looked a lot different. I'm sure she was very, very discouraged. Because look look in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, which means sweetness. She says, no, no, no. Call me Mara. It's bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. I had a husband. I had two sons. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from, her, from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the harv- barley harvest was beginning. You can take a seat. Thank you for standing as we read this morning, I'd like to share five lessons with you that I have learned, and I think that we can learn from Ruth and Naomi. You know, the Bible says that we will gonna, we're going to have troubles and tribulation, trials, difficulties. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I felt much like what Naomi was describing there in that chapter. The Lord's hand was against me when Kristen passed. I, in fact, I said, God, I'm done. I've been a pastor for you for 25 years. I've given everything of my life for you. And this is what happens? I literally said, Lord, I'm done. Take me. I have nothing more to give. I've given everything. And I'm done. I'm just ready to go. And uh, Jesus promises us. People would come after the funeral and they would say to me, Curtis, oh, you're going to make it. It's going to be all right. You know, at times I just got kind of ticked off at him. Like, you have no idea. You know what really God promises? John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That was Jesus. Those were his words. He promises us tribulation. Now, he'll, he'll be with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. But... There's going to be trials and tough times. And so lesson number one that I've learned in watching and looking at Naomi and in my own grief journey with my own kids is we need to balance joy and sorrow simultaneously. Like, wow, how do you do that? You know, well, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet he was a man full of joy. The Bible says, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, and yet at the same time, he had joy. The Apostle Paul writes the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, I'm sorrowful, yet I'm always rejoicing. That's, that's why he could write in Philippians, and is in prison, it's one of the prison epistles and he's, he's writing, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. That's what Paul says as he's in prison. In our pain, we need to balance joy. Uh, one of the ways I think we do that is we need to hang around people, hang around folks who are full of joy. In this case, Naomi is pretty bitter, but Ruth seems to have more joy than Naomi. Naomi's blessed to have this young lady with her. And when we do things that are life-giving with people that are fun, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We need to hang around people who, when we're struggling in life, we need to hang around people who have laughter. Laughter's like good medicine, Right? Sometimes, I would go to worship. Worship to me is life-giving. But right after Kristen passed, I couldn't sing the hymns. I couldn't sing the songs, the praise choruses. I I, I would just sit there and sometimes would just cry. But there was something unique going on in the worship service. Even though I would stand and tears coming down my face, I I couldn't sing but I'd leave fuller than when I came there was something supernatural going on even though I couldn't really sing and worship like I wanted to uh you know a while back I spoke to a group of senior citizens and uh as I was getting prepared to speak this I, I had seen this guy in quite some time he was in my Bible study years ago and he came he'd come up uh, down the hallway in a wheelchair he's uh, he's gotta be in his mid-seventies pushing 80 years old and he's, he's and he hadn't seen me uh, for quite some time and he said Kurt how, how are you doing and I said, Neil, I, it's great to see you. I, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm doing good. I said, how are you doing? He's in a wheelchair. i doing, I'm, I'm doing great. I go, really? You're doing great? He goes, yeah, I'm doing great. I just married my third wife. I said, third wife? He said, yes. He said, my first wife, we were married for 17 years, and then she passed away. And then uh, my second wife, we were married for 30 years. And then she passed away. And I just married my third wife, Betsy. And he points down the hallway, and here she's coming. I'm going, wow, three wives. No kidding. He puts his hand up and he says, no kidding. He says, Kurt, I thank God, the living God, for my three wives. They've loved me, they've encouraged me, they've been there by my side all these years. My God, it's incredible three wives and all of a sudden Betsy comes up, his third wife. I said, Betsy, so nice to meet you. She goes, great to meet you. I said, so like, you're number three? And she goes, he's number four. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. She leans up into my, to whisper in my ear, she goes, I'm just hard on men. (laughs) I'm like going, this couple has had tragedy and death over and over and over again. But the joy of the Lord was their strength. They walked simultaneously with death and sorrow and tragedy and yet joy. And that's what God calls us to do. Debbie DePorter, a lady that I was on staff with for years, when Bob Russell did her funeral, he visited her right before she was going to pass, just a few days. And she says, Bob, you're going to do the funeral. Make me a lot better than I am. And she had a smile on her face. Debbie was in the throes of death. She knows death is days away. And yet she still had joy. She still had a sense of humor. God calls us to live with joy and sorrow and balance that. I don't know what you're going through. What you've been through and what's coming your way. If you haven't had trials in a while... I hate to tell you this, but there's more probably coming. But we need to learn to walk with joy and sorrow, balance that. Second lesson I've learned is we need to trust in the mystery of God. Tom Skinner, chaplain of the Washington Redskins, says, I spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. When suddenly I realized I had better come to grips with what I believe. I have since moved from the agony of questions that I cannot answer to the reality of answers that I cannot escape. And it's a great relief. We have to trust in the mystery of God. We don't understand. The Bible says His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are are so above our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts, so my ways are above your ways and thoughts on this for, uh, for us human beings. Philippians chapter 1 says, Paul is t- talking, he's in prison. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There, there's a mysteriousness that happens when we go through trials and difficulties, and God uses that. There's a lady, her name is Rowena Duplissis. USA Today writes about her a while back uh, after Katrina. Just listen to a couple paragraphs. Rowena could be forgiven for doubting the goodness of God. She lost her home in New Orleans. She was saved, but she lost her home during Hurricane Katrina, only a year after the death of her husband. Last fall, her son committed suicide. Then robbers broke into the trailer where she and her son once lived, which made her afraid to stay there alone. Yet, like a surprising number of Katrina survivors, This lady says her faith in God has only grown stronger. Hear her words. She says, this is what sustains me. When it's really bad, and I mean when it's really bad, you put it in his hands. You do what you are able to do, and you have faith that he can and will do the rest. He's carried me on many days when I couldn't walk or even stand myself. Here's what she says. Here's her counsel. When you feel discouraged, when you have no hope, you do what only you can do and you have faith in the living god that he can and will do the rest we have to trust in him in the mystery of what we don't understand we live in a culture that we want answers right and if we don't know the answers what do we do we google it but when you think about the mysteriousness of god we have to trust him. Sur- uh, Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. There's a mysteriousness now uh, 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 about the Bible, about some of the great people of the Bible. You think about uh, When I think about the prophets and all that they had to endure, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 20, the Bible says that Isaiah is to wear his fruit of the looms with buttocks bared for three years to be a sign, to be a prophecy. I'm like, Lord, that is out there. He's just got to walk around in his fruit of the looms for three years. There's a mysteriousness of God. Jeremiah the prophet. We know him as Jeremiah the, the weeping prophet. He can't get control of himself. He's just so sad. The destruction of Israel, the temple, Jerusalem, all ransacked. Nebuchadnezzar's come, destroyed it all. I'm like, Lord, Jeremiah's, he's he's like a good guy. One of my most disturbing passages in the Bible is Ezekiel 24. He always called Ezekiel son of man. He said, son of man, I'm going to strike you with a blow. I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes away from you. And that night his wife dies. Like, Lord, Ezekiel's the good guy. He's the prophet. He's the righteous one. God says in the later verses, right after that, you're going to be assigned to my people. I am taking away the delight of their eyes. The temple worship, Jerusalem. They have... They have have idolatry in their hearts. They're not following me wholeheartedly. They've, They've got wickedness, and therefore destruction is coming. I'm going to exile my people away from this precious land of promise. And for 70 years, the people are exiled. And Ezekiel was an example. Like, Lord, your ways are not my ways. I mean, I think of Jonah. He's got, to go, he's got to go preach to ISIS. That was the Assyrian empire. That, they were like the ISIS of our day. You go preach to them, Jonah. And Jonah's like, forget that. I'm leaving. He goes the opposite way. He wants, he wants the judgment of God and damnation on the Assyrian empire. They are enemies of, of, of Israel and the enemies of God. His ways are not our ways. You think about Hosea. Hosea's got to marry a whore. God says, you be faithful to her, Hosea. You marry her, you be faithful to her. She's a, she's a prostitute, and she is, she's got all kinds of unfaithfulness, but you are a picture. You are going to be a picture, Hosea, of my faithfulness to my people. Like, oh, Lord, you are, you're asking a lot of Hosea. You think about Daniel throwing the lion's in." I mean, God saved him, but wow, he had to be scared spitless. Going to get dropped down in those, all those lions that haven't eaten in how many days. And then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, faithful guys. Throw them in the fire. They remained faithful. God miraculously you know, restored them. You think about John the Baptist. Jesus said, there's nobody on the planet better than that guy. What happens to him? He loses his head. He gets his head chopped off, literally. Like, Lord, I I thought you liked John the Baptist. His ways are not our ways. We have to trust him in the midst of difficulty and pain and sorrow. That's why Dorothy Sayers She says Christianity has its enormous advantage over every other religion in the world. It is the only religion, Christianity, that gives value to evil and suffering. There's something about God in his economy. Pain, suffering, trials are good, are useful, are beneficial for his kingdom. And I'm like, I'm not liking it. But he says, trust me. Trust me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge me. And I'll direct your steps. I'll make your path straight. It won't be easy, but it'll be good. The third lesson that I've learned Not only entrusting the mystery of a loving God, but God wants to use us, even in the hard times. And we need to be courageous. You think about Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, they couldn't see it. Naomi couldn't see it. But if you just fast forward to the end of the book in chapter 4, Ruth is going to become the great grandma of King David. David. And if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you're going to read Ruth's name in there because she is the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But they couldn't see that. God uses us even when we don't understand, and we need to be courageous. Richard Foster says this, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. He's calling us to be deep. Many times the only way we can grow deeper is through pain and suffering. I couldn't do funerals and weddings for quite a while after Kristen passed. But I recently did, uh, I've been doing a number of them since uh, in the last uh, couple of years, but... I went to, uh, this couple had been married for 52 years. Bill and Janet helped us significantly in our journey as we're going through treatments with Kristen before she passed. And when Bill passed, I went to go see Janet. And I just wrapped my arms around her. She started crying. She said, you know this pain, don't you? said i do it so stinks and i'm so sorry you see god wants to use us in our pain second corinthians chapter one says the god of all comfort gives us his comfort so that we may give comfort i had more compassion and i've had more compassion ever in my 25 plus years of ministry I went to visit a uh, guy who had just lost. He was in the hospital, going to have major surgery on his leg and eventually be amputated. He had just lost his dad, and I was sitting in the chair. and He's he's describing all of this. He begins to cry, and he starts to weep. I slipped out of the chair and I sat right next to him on his bedside, my leg touching his infected leg. God, there was a sheet in between. And I put my hand on his leg and I started to cry with him. I walked out of, I prayed with him, walked out of the hospital and it was like the Holy Spirit said, I'm changing you, Kurt. I thought I always had pretty good compassion when I would go to the hospital. But five years ago, I would have never cried. But I wept with him. We just sat there together and cried and cried and I just tried to hold him. God changes us and God wants to use us for His glory. Be available. Be courageous. The fourth lesson I've learned in this, and looking at Ruth and Naomi, it's okay to be sad and even angry with God for a while. I think Naomi really struggled being sad and disillusioned and, and bitter. She says, bitterness. I'm a bitter woman. I've lost my whole family Jonah was angry with God David seems to be angry at times with God Elijah wanted to die right after he conquers all the prophets of Baal has this great victory and then Jezebel wants to kill him and he's running away he's fleeing and Elijah says I'm done I have no more to give I want to die I think it's okay to be that way for a while. But at some point, we've got to turn the corner. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing will come in the morning. I prayed Psalm 147, verse 3, over my kids for almost uh, probably a, a year, year and a half. Psalm 147, verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. That is a great prayer, a great verse to pray over those who are struggling. And in the midst of deep sadness, the Lord slowly, slowly, slowly heals the brokenhearted. The fifth lesson that I want to share with you is the hope of the resurrection. The Bible says that there's hope. He wants us to number our days. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To to remember, we're, we're, we're not living on this earth forever. Sometimes we act like it. But the Bible says, this is not our home. We're aliens. Jesus, uh, I love the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But my favorite My favorite of all time. When Jesus in John chapter 11 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. We have the hope of the resurrection. This isn't our home. The Bible says we are citizens of heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. That's why Isaiah writes in in Isaiah 60, The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Kristen and I, five and a half years ago, went to a funeral of a young man, 49, the widow was a stay-at-home, homeschooled mom of two kids. Bob told her, he told Nancy, said, Nancy, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing will come in the morning. That lady was the only person I knew who lost her sp- spouse At Southeast, who had kids my kids' age. So I reached out to her after Kristen passed. I had interviewed widows and widowers. I wanted to learn how to go through this grief journey. I wanted to do it as best as I could because, frankly, I was a mess. I started uh, learning from Nancy and uh, we started talking and she was telling me about the things that she did and what she didn't do after losing her husband. And we started to walk together. And we were walking and talking. And you can probably see where this is going. We fell in love. And last month that picture we celebrated our first anniversary together and I, I think about what Bob said to me and what Bob said to Nancy weeping may remain for a night but rejoicing comes in the morning Nancy is an absolute delight and um I'm so glad that she's here today um, she, she, she would say don't have me stand up <laughs> but I'll wave at her and say hi honey <laughs> and I go Lord I don't understand your ways but I'm forever forever grateful for 22 awesome years with Kristen and now I get this I'm, I'm kind of like Neil I thank the living God for my two wives. In 1905, the song His Eye is on the Sparrow was written by a pastor's wife known simply as Mrs. Martin. There was a lady in the church. Her name was Mrs. Doolittle and they would go to see her, the pastor and the wife, from time to time and they would try to encourage her. Inevitably, they would leave feeling encouraged by this woman. She was bedridden for more than 20 years. Her husband was crippled and was confined to a wheelchair. She's bedridden, 20 years, husband's in a wheelchair. And so the pastor and Mrs. Martin would go and visit. And as they would encourage her, they would be encouraged. One day, the pastor said, What is the secret of your joy, Mrs. Doolittle? Why? How do you fight off this discouragement? You're so hopeful. Her reply was very simple. She referenced the teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10. And she said with a slight smile, If his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me. Mrs. Martin heard that expression from Mrs. Doolittle, and she was humbled, she was inspired, she went home, she thought of her struggles and her challenges and her circumstances and her situations and all the things that would discourage her. And Kyle Eidelman writes, And she sat down to write a song, and the first words were, Why do you feel discouraged? And she begins to remind herself of the hope that she has in Jesus, a hope that doesn't disappoint. And my prayer for you this morning, that you would feel encouraged, that God is with you, that God is for you, no matter what your circumstances are in life right now. I know in this audience there are people in significant pain and loss, suffering. But God is with you. He's for you. And he'll strengthen you. And that you would today be filled with hope the same way that Mrs. Martin was on that day when she penned these words more than 110 years ago. His eye is on the sparrow.